Myself, Lauren, and Leo, welcome to episode 238. This time around, you're hanging out with award-winning filmmaker and actor Josh Rubin. He rules! At time of release, his hilarious new horror comedy lycanthrope mystery, Werewolves Within, is in theaters now, digital and VOD July 2nd. Deep dive into the video store shelves with us and Josh's formative horror experiences with the likes of Freddy Krueger and Stephen King, up to making 2020's outstanding Scare Me. We talk about the potential to revisit that world and the process of working with an exceptional ensemble cast and the werewolf world building on his fantastic follow-up. Dig your claws into episode 238. It starts now. just seen a corpse well the roads are effed and something's wrong with the generator which generator all of them thank you on the internet uh also there's a dead body under your porch holy ah! probably a wolf what are you like a wolf detective no marcus who knows who or when Gotta kill next. I think we can all agree that it's unsafe outside and there's safety in numbers. Out of curiosity, who is packing? Well, we're having a good old-fashioned sleepover. With guns, though. With guns, yes. Everything about this predator is unorthodox. It's not human. It's not a canine. It's one of them. One of what? A what? Like a, a werewolf. Look at it gotten in here. Oh. Ah! How did it get out? Who says it got out? <laughs> Maybe. I'm a werewolf. Maybe you're a werewolf. Maybe you're a werewolf. Yeah. You're a werewolf. You're a werewolf. You're a werewolf. Yeah. Maybe we're all werewolves. Oh, right. <laughs> Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. All right, joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio is a driven, inventive, and inspiring creator. In 2003, he founded the web sketch comedy troupe Dutch West, writing, directing, acting, and producing in tons of shorts, which led him to join College Humor in 2008, creating some of the shows and series that became a part of shaping online comedy and the concept of viral videos forever, racking up millions upon millions of views for things like the Six series. He went on to craft sketches for the Late Late Show, many successful commercial campaigns, work as a part of the world-famous Upright Citizens Brigade, directing duties for shows including Adam Ruins Everything and Spotify's The Last Degree of Kevin Bacon, which he also acted in, adding to an already insane list of roles and characters he's brought to life from Mama and Precious Plum, Mr. Squint and the Britishes, and Hulu's brand new movie, Plan B, being honored with several awards and accolades along the way. 
In 2020, his incredibly imaginative horror comedy, Scare Me, he wrote, directed, and starred and went to Sundance, quickly finding a home on Shudder, where it continues to find new fans to this day who are charmed by its remarkable intimacy and originality. His follow-up is a hilarious and terrifying whodunit with claws. It's called Werewolves Within. It's about an eclectic cast of characters trapped at the local inn during a snowstorm as a mysterious creature or creatures are lurking. A time of release in theaters June 25th, digital and VOD July 2nd. We are honored to welcome Mr. Josh Rubin. What an intro. I just, I feel like uh, we should start playing Smash Mouth. You know, just, um, you know what I mean? Just what a, what an intro. Dude, how are you doing, man? Thanks for hanging with us. Congrats on this film. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm wonderful. How are you guys? We're doing okay. I got to say, man, Great. even the poster for this thing looks like one of those classic Drew Struzan posters that we grew up on in the 80s. What was your reaction just to seeing even the poster and art design for this stuff? Oh, dude, the wonderful thing was the f- lovely folks at Bond Creative, because when you do a film that has, you know, six million more dollars than your first film, you actually have people that can actually help you make a poster. The wonderful thing was um, I could sort of say, hey, I think I want to take it in this vibe or I'd love to see something that feels like, you know, that, that uh, runs with this crafting motif. Then they just like knock it out of the park with, you know, 50 ideas you get to pare down. And it's just uh, it's a what they call a problem of abundance. And um, I knew from the get go, I mean, Brett Bachman, our editor, he was the one who, you know, I think we kind of found the sort of. Beetlejuicy Tremors vibe, arachnophobia vibe kind of film. The font is a big thing. I wanted to evoke that kind of VHS era vibe we all grew up knowing and loving. And he found that like wonderful, wonderful text, that wonderful font that kind of, I think, caps the thing so beautifully. So it's cute. It's a little weird. It's irreverent, but it's like just the title alone is kind of striking and um, you end up with something like that. There's more too that hopefully we'll release after, uh, after out on VOD. I mean, you're definitely a dude who wears his love and reverence for the genre on his sleeve through all this stuff and the wonderful send ups you've done in, in this movie and in scare me from jaws to the shining and Elm street tales from the crypt. I mean, the list goes on going back. What is, your very first experience you remember having with the horror genre as a viewer? I want to say it was uh, Stephen King's Cat's Eye. It was probably the, the troll in the wall, if not the kind of kinder trauma of the peanut butter cup solution or the peanut butter solution. Uh, yeah, I remember that um, one. Oh my God. The navigator. Yes. Yeah. I think, I think like the kinder trauma of, of those movies like flood and navigator, which I just rewatched recently. It was like, the, the, there's a, there's an inherent kind of cosmic horror in Alan Silvestri's kind of um, uh, uh, score, and also in the trauma of this kid like like disappearing, kind of you know um, uh, getting lost and going back to find his family when he realizes his family like doesn't you know isn't the same as they were when he disappeared ten years ago and he hasn't aged, but also um, you know like that early early uh, horror for me, like true horror, like watching like, you know, the great sort of quote unquote schlocky Stephen King or Freddie films. My intro wasn't like the first Nightmare on Elm Street, but like Dream Warriors, you know, so it was with a more cartoonish, more colorful, more buoyant sort of horror. If not, you know, stuff like the troll busting through the wall and the young Drew Barrymore's uh, 
bedroom, um, along with, of course, other great gateway horror like like Ghostbusters and the like. So it was it was a confluence of the heavier stuff and the brighter stuff that we all had the pleasure of growing up on. Do you remember the first horror comedy you saw? Wow, great question. Well, probably uh, I want to say Beetlejuice. That pro- that probably was, but I'm sure there was something earlier because I do consider like. A film like Dream Warriors, even Dream Master, with as like awful as some of the gore was in a wonderful way, I think that's horror comedy. Like for me, I remember looking at Freddie and thinking, like, that's a cartoon character to me. You know, I I I felt I felt that Robert Englund was, and I kind of wanted to be friends with him. I mean, we grew up in an era where I don't know if you remember, there were toys, like there were like, you know, sucker hand Freddie you could put on the back of your mom and dad's Subaru Loyale. And he's like, oh, well, if there's toys and if he's, you know, getting lightning bolts shot at him and, you know, eating a, a meatball with, you know, a kid's face on it, it's got to be a cartoon, you know? And, uh, and then, of course, developed into my love and adoration for Tales from the Crypt years later. But, yeah, that's a great question. It probably was somewhere between, you know, later Freddy and, uh, and Beetlejuice. Did you find that comedy tempered the horrifying elements for you? Did it make you feel more comfortable while watching it? What do you think the effect of comedy did when it, when it's infused with horror? That's a great question. I mean, cause my intro to it was so comedy inherent. It was less about jump scares for me. Like, you know, if we're, we're staying on the Freddy train, but I'm sure it did like, you know, that there was a kind of a dread to like cat's eye, which I think was my first, you know, again, my first sort of um, horror intro where I was Definitely grateful for any kind of more buoyant moment of which there really there really weren't that many in that movie in particular. It was kind of like dark and campy in a weird way. And it felt like there was sort of no way out of it watching it. But yeah, I I I, I was definitely drawn toward more horror buoyant or comedy buoyant horror as opposed to stuff that, you know, just scared me from the get-go. Like Silver Bullet, I still have a hard time watching because it does feel like what would really happen. If there were a, uh, you know, you, you and your drunk uncle had to take on a werewolf at a cabin, but Monster Squad, I remember too, as a, as a gateway for me, they, that was where I really appreciated the buoyant humor of it all, because the horror in that movie is, is really good. It's really impactful, especially the werewolf horror. You can see the terror in this, this traumatized blue collar guy actually wrestling with this thing inside him. And it, you can feel the pain of it all. And you're as a, kid you're watching it like get back to the kids on the bikes you know yeah yeah Um, Yeah, there's lots of those moments right yeah (laughs) yeah so when it all comes together you're like fuck yeah yeah exactly that was my jam it's probably probably monster squad probably like kicked me and kicked my ass into you know the next 20 years of love and everything about it it was like oh you can have everything that touches all sides of your genre loving brain from the you know the the dracula green to the to the prosthetics and uh, you know, the, the humor of it all was beautifully balanced. We've seen such an exciting boom of horror content this past year, especially, and you've been such a big part of this with scare me. And I mean, we're not complaining a- as a creator. What do you attribute this boom to? Uh, well, I, I can't put my finger on uh, a horror comedy that I had seen recently that I, um, that I loved, I think maybe ready or not is quite close. 
But the horror boom, I don't know. I mean, we're coming out of kind of a bleak time. I think there's a reason why Ari Aster went back to back and we all were kind of like, yes, give me that dread, daddy. Be, be, it's like listening to uh, to sad music after a breakup. It's like we just went through a four-year dramatic breakup, break on, break up, off, break in, um, break in, you know, uh, on January 6th. Um, but uh, yeah, I, uh, I I would assume it's it's that same kind of thing of wanting to of feeling the catharsis through art. Right. And so now what I'm, what I, what I truly do feel biased as I am about werewolves within as an example and horror comedy in general as an example is that I think we're ready for fun again. I, I would like to think that we're ready for a Freddy esque, a monster squad esque. I mean, stranger things has been doing the thing, which is pretty, which is really rad, but I think we're ready for what, to continue the boom ride and surf that ride into something that dares go into the humor and the fun of it all while, while playing the, the emotional stakes for real and the scares for real. And, you know, ideally making you laugh a pinch along the way. Before we get into werewolves within, I wanted to just touch on the fact that you've spent a good part of this past year reflecting on scare me and doing a lot of press for that. Looking back on it, what perspective do you think you've gained towards that film and doing that press run? Wow, that's a great question. What perspective has that have I gained doing the the press run for for? I mean, I think um, I don't know. There, there are many different approaches I could take to this answer because on the the one hand, <clears throat> it's wonderful to kind of experience making that thing where I kind of said, "No one's going to spoon feed me. I'm going to make my own thing. I'm going to like." put my own money in, ask my friends to be in this thing just to, and, and will this thing to life, which, which I did. And riding a pinch through the frustration of not being able to show it to a, to a live audience. I, the only time I ever saw it with an audience was at Sundance 2020, which was a beautiful experience. But uh, I felt so proud to, to hear folks go, this is way too long. It feels like a shitty improv movie to holy shit, this is one of the most original, unusual things I've ever seen. And, and Aya Cash, holy crap, Aya Cash, Chris Red, holy crap, and Bettina, oh my God, Becky Drysdale. So the, the, I think um, there was this sort of wonderful thing in this year, in that kind of traumatic year, where I got to reflect on this awesome project and see people respond to, you know, as Megan Navarro called it, like a cozy um, sort of pull a blanket up kind of a horror film. It was like, oh, wow, it feels like, you know, whatever's going on outside in the world, whatever storm is going on outside, I can actually maybe turn my brain off and watch something and feel, you know, what it's like to reconnect in a, in a closed space. So it was, it was lovely. It was, it was really nice. I'm, I'm excited for what my selfish imagination perceives to be the 10 years from now where we can do like some special screening and I can wear a blazer and hold a coffee and have a ponytail and talk about how great it was to work with Academy Award winner, Chris and I and Becky. The Boo Crew will be right back. Don't miss the most unusual and exciting horror motorcycle film yet made. I come to offer you youth and fresh, fresh, Love. Hey, we all know how we're going to die, baby. We're going to crash and burn. <laughs> Werewolves on Wheels, starring Steve Oliver and Severn Darden. The story of a motorcycle gang who ride into a new kind of hell. They ride wild, play hard, 
and fight brutal. I write your unholy name thrice in blood. Fire Satan, you are one with him. Fire Satan, you are one with him. Fire Satan. Werewolves on Wheels, the most eerie, the most chilling, the most terrifying motorcycle horror film ever made. Their survival was the torch, as one by one they became terrifying, bloodthirsty werewolves on wheels. Don't miss the first horror motorcycle film ever made, Werewolves on Wheels. Rated R. Have you thought about bringing people back for a sequel for Scare Me? I've thought about it. I mean, who who would have thought that any anyone would be interested in uh, even exploring something remotely in that world? But there there may there may be something being uh, in the works, which is bonkers, so bonkers soon, so way sooner than I thought I'd ever be talking about it. But uh, we'll see. You know, it's a Herculean effort to make anything these days, let alone a film. But um, yeah, I, I'd, I'd be thrust. If I could just stay in the genre, whether it's, you know, making, creating objects out of space to scare people in a cabin or, uh, or you know, making werewolf movies, I'm, I'm, I'll take it. You've gone from Scare Me, an anthology that put us inside the cabin with you, around the campfire, incredibly immersive. And now you take us on this new journey and talk about immersive based on one of the more immersive VR video games that have come out in a long time in, in Werewolves Within, a game of deceit, a game of misdirection and lies that we, you know, we're a part of. And you put us in this world with this film. So tell us about your discovery of this entire notion of even bringing the story of this game to life and its writer, Mishnah Wolf. Well, Mishnah Wolf had developed the hell out of this film with Ubisoft through their um, women's uh, uh, film and television fellowship program at Ubisoft. And so by the time the script came to me, it was so well sort of rounded and thought out. My contribution to it was as a hired gun was here's how I can make it funnier. Here's how I can make it visually exciting with all these sort of references. You know, my, my conversation with the actors was imagine making Fargo by way of Amblin, you know, if Fargo were an Amblin film, let's go that route. And everyone kind of went, Oh, okay. I get it. You know, referencing movies like arachnophobia and Shaun of the dead as well. The world so spoke to me from page one. And um, I saw and felt those references. It felt like an excuse to imbue everything I loved about everything we've already talked about already from stuff I grew up on, you know, even references just on an aesthetic level to stuff like Monster Squad, just to scare me was kind of an homage and love letter to to horror movies, whether on the nose or not. But uh, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was a thrill to kind of land the gig and then have the conversation, you know, with Ubisoft, what do I owe you guys? This is a video game film, you know? So Easter eggs, you guys want that. Right. And they're like, you don't know us anything, but a good movie. And I was like, no way you don't, you don't want like, you know, a nod to the count or, you know, for the werewolf design to match that of the video game or anything. They said, no, this is just make it the kind, make it the film you want to make. And um, that was a thrill. Um, So I was the one to sort of, throw certain Easter eggs to 
those uh, who have played and enjoyed the game, which is something I want as a viewer if I am watching something based on any IP. Of course you want a wink to you know, the game. It's the game movie. But, uh, but I was otherwise able to, to just sort of get, say, like, let's make this script the best movie we can make it in, in this amount of time with this amount of money. What went into bringing the town of Beaverfield to life? And it's look and feel. I mean, it's in particular, the amazing look and feel of that inn. Oh, My yeah. God, it's gorgeous. <laughs> That's yeah. a real place. You can get married there. It's called Spillion. Really? Yeah, it's in Fleischmann's, New York. It's a real uh, It's a real location. It's run by a guy named uh, Mark. I forget his wife's name. She didn't kill me. Uh, they were so wonderful. It's it's an event space. It's interior like a bed and breakfast exterior? and event space. Interior and exterior. Wow. That's the real deal. Um, you can... You can rent a room there. I have a buddy message me on Twitter. Like I just realized I'm having my wedding where you shot werewolves. I can't <laughs> wait to see it. And I hope that it drives common. Look, I grew up in the Hudson Valley. It's where I shot a uh, scare me as well. Closer to Woodstock, New York. But you know, um, if I can do, if I can dare, I say do for upstate with like Shyamalan does for Pennsylvania, you know, if I can like go back home and drive some commerce home, like the dream would be to bring a series back to the area like that. That's, that's my dream. You know, I, I, I would love to bring business back to the land where I, as a, you know, as a, a chubby friendless kid with a big imagination played in those very woods can come back and create creature features in those very woods. And, and it's, you know, we're going back and screening the film, the Greenville drive-in and, you know, um, uh, inviting folks down to the city for Tribeca and the like, it's, it's, it's been an absolute an absolute thrill. There's something about that that landscape that's just sort of wonderful. Larry Fessenden's done some stuff up there. I mean, between The Dead Don't Die and Wendigo and other stuff, other sort of genre films that are shot in the area, it's um, yeah, I'd like to keep it a part of my my filmography if I can. How did it feel? Oh, what were you gonna say? I was just I just wanted to talk about props, but go ahead. We can oh, talk about oh, props man. after. Oh, t- okay, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, we definitely gotta talk about props. Okay. <laughs> I wanted to know how it felt from going from your first feature with a cast of basically three characters to a massive ensemble and what, what that experience was like as a director to not only have the increased responsibility, but also increased collaborative possibilities and partners. Yeah, I mean, I, the 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 quantity of actors wasn't uh, intimidating by any means, but the, the quality of them, the fact that I was working with people who've worked with Spielberg, the Coen brothers, you know, cameoed and Men in Black and Spider-Man and, you know, have been on TV shows that I've known and loved for some time, HBO's Veep, you know, not to say, uh, to, to call Sam out. That was scary for me. That was <clears throat> my initial intimidation that Harvey Guillen, having worked with Taika Waititi and Matt Berry and, you know, this incredible crew, Kyvan Novak on what we do in the shadows was going to come and play this role in, in my film. I, I wanted to deliver. It was intimidating, but it was cool because I also got to bring aboard friends. It's still an independent film. So <clears throat> I was able to sort of say, I want George Basil, who's one of the funniest dudes I know, to come aboard and play Marcus. I, and, I, and also he's a good human being. So it was like no asshole uh, policy with, you know, I mentioned that to Gail Keller, our casting director, obviously, you know, like, let's make sure that if, you know, the, the actor uh, that we're circling is rumored to be carrying a, a 35, maybe we should, we should, um, or a 32 caliber, maybe we should uh, cast someone who isn't, you know, um, I don't know, no one specifically was carrying a 35 or 32. I don't know if 35 is a real, it probably is. 35 real gun. But anyway, uh, 
so beyond beyond that, it was like, yeah, bringing in folks who were friends and then having those actors suggest who might play their spouse or their husband. Oh, that's fine. Like Harvey did for Cheyenne Jackson and George did for Sarah Burns. So we, we just built out this kind of like who's who of, of awesome performers in, in and around New York, which I was stoked to, to make work. This movie is so funny. Were there any scenes that you shot that you guys had to redo like a hundred times because everybody was laughing so hard? Oh, man. I mean, there are so many. I think anytime there was a big group of people, absolutely. All those tableau kind of scenes, like the scene where the dead bodies on the porch and all of them are sort of screaming and reacting to the cadaver was just so funny and, and fun. I, Rebecca Henderson, who plays Dr. Ellis, is one of the funniest people I know, you know, next to folks like Milana and Sam. She really killed me. I, I mean, um, I couldn't keep my shit together, but she is so focused and so professional. Uh, she would just be like, come on, like, let's let's keep doing this thing. Yeah, there was there was a lot. <laughs> there was there was a lot. I mean, that's just what you get when you have all these like wonderful, you know, wonderful actors. There was a scene. There's actually a video. I hope we can show it someday soon. But there's a scene when I think, um, well, I can't say who, but there's a character who's screaming, like shrieking in one scene upstairs in the house. And while that scene was being filmed, the other actors were in another room, just kind of in a green room filming George serve a cheesecake to some of the actors <laughs> while they were listening. He was just going, here you go. And here you are. As you can just hear like, just <laughs> like a cheesecake. A cheesecake. It was a, turned out to be one of the, or like a, like a, like a, you know, peach cobbler or something. It was such a funny video. It's ridiculous. Someday we'll be able to, <laughs> we'll be able to release it to the public. But um, they had a great time with each other. It's a funny ass crew and a great script. And it, uh, it, you know, you have to, as a as a director, be willing to play jazz with your actors, let everybody put, you know, skin in the game, kind of do their thing. But you're also supporting people, making them feel safe and comfortable enough to, to fuck around, you know? Milana has a very memorable scene to Ace of Bases, the sign. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You always seem to make really yeah. interesting and unforgettable choices when it comes to music and song choice in your film. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I mean, I, I'll tell you specifically why Ace of Base is in the film. Yeah. That is tied to a, uh, a beloved horror movie going memory where my sister, Rachel, she's nine years older than me. So when, when I was, um, gosh, probably seven or eight years old and she's a cool teenager, she walked into my room. You know, she had her license, obviously. And she said, you want to go see Jason Goes to Hell? And I was like, such a big Jason fan, such a big Freddie fan and being like, my big sister is going to go like out of the blue, like open the door and say, let's go see Jason goes to hell the final Friday. And we get in her Volkswagen rabbit. And one of the first songs we're like driving through Potomac, Maryland is Ace of Bases. I saw the sign. And so it wasn't arbitrary. There's a specific reason why that song is in there. And it's, it's, uh, it's for that reason, it's, it's tied to a beloved horror memory of, of mine, my, my sister and I, who is responsible, I think, for a lot of my love of horror, driving to the movie theater and, and seeing Jason get shot by a SWAT team in the first uh, five minutes and then uh, characters eat his cold black heart and become him. Oh, my Aww, God. I love that. That's great. Do, do, you keep that, do you keep that train going throughout your other musical choices that you make in the film? Like, you know, I found love, for instance, or anything like that. Or is that is that one particular instance? 
That was a particular instance. You know, I, I keep a running list of films on, uh, you know, my Spotify Discover Weekly and stuff, uh, not an ad, um, where <laughs> I just sort of think, wow, there's something really interesting about that tune. Music is so important, right? And if you can afford it, it has such an emotional impact. You, you watch Halloween. If you go back and look at Halloween, it is wall-to-wall synth. It is wall-to-wall score, and it's such a reason why it has this kind of cosmic dread to it. And, um, you know, same thing goes for, for, for lyrical uh, tunes as well. I think, you know, a, a tune like I Found Love, I kind of heard it and went, this is interesting. But then listening to the lyrics and thinking about the circumstances of the film and the characters and that they all are looking for love to a degree or looking to be accepted and in this kind of small town mentality, it just um, played in very well. I do wish that though Savage Garden worked out great. The original choice was the Spice Girls is um, to become one. But, you know, I listened to that one on the on the minibus as a kid who really, really loved it and got moved by it and was like, oh, man, wouldn't it be romantic to kiss a girl to to become one? Uh, so I would have I would have lived vicariously through Sam and Milana, the old uh, high school Hudson Valley kid in me. But alas, Savage Garden. Good enough. <laughs> One day you'll get your Spice Girl yeah. moment. Leo, you have a question, man. <laughs> Jump in, man. Yeah. Since you, you mentioned um, Fargo and I was thinking, actually, while, while watching this, I was thinking uh, parts of it reminded me of uh, Northern Exposure. And I was thinking, yeah, Sam's character, Finn, you know, coming to the strange town, dealing with kooky people and all that. So I thought it was fantastic. Uh, overall, in this, in this film, you do stray slightly away from the typical werewolf tropes, like the use of, you know, a silver bullet or religious iconography or signs of a curse, et cetera. What led to this decision to keep the werewolf a mystery? That's a great question. You know, I, I, I think there was just something inherent in Mishnah's script where we felt like it wasn't, it wasn't necessary that there might not, we might not need to sort of um, burrow into that exposition or sort of pull apart that exposition too much. I think just like the lack of hospitals and police support in this town and logic that way, I think it's sort of, I'd like to think it, it plays lockstep with the execution of it all and that people, you know, hopefully it doesn't take folks uh, too much out of it. But uh, I mean, it certainly leaves there to be um, uh, an interesting sequel or prequel opportunity in my, my personal opinion, where it's like, well, I mean, every, everything this thing would have touched would have, I mean, I mean, by lore's stake would have become one of them. So we'll, uh, we'll see. Did you keep any props? They're amazing props. (laughs) I want oh one my of the axe things. <laughs> I would keep it all. Oh man, those axes were great. We were those were uh, those were created by Matt Highland and Brett Tanz, our production designers, who were so awesome. Brett worked on not only the the Dark Knight. He like literally cut the uh, he cut the weapon shapes in the foam for Bruce Wayne, and also did oh, the same cool. thing for us for a certain character. If you remember the scene in the back of the trunk, and I was like, "You did that for Batman? Can you do that for us?" But also they created these axes with these like rubber tops that actually looked metal. And obviously you're chucking them. But uh, yes, I, at the wrap party, I got the most beautiful gift. There is a, um, a guest ledger, the Beaverfield Inn guest ledger that sits on Janine's desk, which is also the Easter egg, like the tie-in to the video game. Um, because the book in the game, Werewolves Within, is a big part of the game. It's sort of your key, you know, your weapons, your kind of uh, your ingredients for um, for sort of all the social deduction of it all. And the entire casting crew signed it. Aww. So it's pages and pages and pages from grips, gaffers, cast members, PAs, like 
um, office PAs, second AD, prop people. It's, it just goes on and on. I was just like, <laughs> you know, kind of going through it, reliving it. It's a beautiful gift. And um, someday when I'm cool and have an office with like, you know, Ghostbusters and Batman Returns toys, I'll put it up there with, you know, maybe an MTV movie award. Intention. Right. Setting an intention. <laughs> and the Sam Richardson yeah. cover issue of Fangoria, which is oh pretty fucking God. amazing. Oh my God, yeah. I'm right, waiting dude? to get my hands on it. Incredible. On, Let's Incredible. Go. Yeah. <laughs> all right, man. Well, we were getting the rap signal. Thank you so much for your time today. We could talk yes. to you all day, man. Congrats on the phone. What a pleasure. Yeah. Oh my gosh, such a bucket list item to talk to you. So this is this is great. That was the Boot Crew Podcast, episode 238. Special thanks to our guest, Josh Rubin. Follow him at Josh Rubin on Instagram and Twitter. At time of release, his new film, Werewolves Within, is in theaters now on digital and BOD July 2nd. We had such a great time with it. We love Josh. Production tracks provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it is the Boot Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! A bloody disgusting podcast network Home of the Boo Crew For horror-centric interviews SCP archives Weekly full-cast storytelling Horror queers Genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective And creepy For disturbing and terrifying creepypastas Listen free wherever you stream audio And at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts